There are 60 uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. There's 56 short ones and four uh, novels. I've read each and every one of them multiple different times. Um, And looking back across the canon of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the most compelling uh, is The Adventure of the Dancing Men. Um, It is... Uh, mysterious, it is compelling, and is one of only two cases uh, where the person that comes to Sherlock Holmes dies in the end. Sorry to spoil it if you haven't uh, uh, read it. Um, And so it's kind of like a failure of Sherlock Holmes. So it just sort of uh, ramps up how difficult the problem is. Um, And uh, I'm going to read from the story. It says this. A heavy step was heard upon the stairs, and an instant later there entered a tall, ruddy, clean-shaven gentleman. Uh, In the olden days, all the guys were ruddy, it seems, to me anyway, whose clear eyes and florid cheeks told of a life led far from the fogs of Baker Street. He seemed to bring a whiff of his strong, fresh, bracing East Coast air with him as he entered. Having shaken hands with each of us, he was about to sit down when his eyes rested upon the paper with the curious markings which I had just examined and left on the table. "'Well, Mr Holmes, what do you make of these?' he cried. "'They told me you were fond of queer mysteries, "'and I don't think you can find a queerer one than that. "'I sent the paper on ahead so that you might have time to study it before I came.' It certainly is. It's it's certainly rather a curious production, said Holmes. At first sight, it would appear to be a childish prank. It consists of a number of absurd little figures dancing across the paper on which they are drawn. Why should you attribute attribute any importance to so grotesque an object? I never should, Mr Holmes, but my wife does. It is frightening her to death. She says nothing, but I can see the terror in her eyes, and that's why I want to sift the matter to the bottom. Holmes held up the paper so that the sunlight shone full upon it. It was a page torn from a notebook. The markings were done in pencil and ran in this way, as you can see on the the video screen. Holmes examined it for some time, and then, folding it carefully up, he placed it in his pocketbook. A lesser man would have ignored the issue. Uh, Another ignoramus would have dismissed it as nonsense. They would have looked at these and said, you know, it's it's the doodlings of a child or uh, a maniac. But Holmes sees a different route. He takes in all the information available and he finds a pathway through the confusion towards a meaning and a solution and help for some, though not for the client who obviously uh, gets killed. Today's reading is often seen by Christians like this uh, array of dancing men. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, one of the uh, uh, starters of the Protestant Reformation, he said this about the text we're going to look at today. He said, it is a wonderful text and a more obscure passage perhaps than any 
other in the New Testament. Hopefully, this piques your interest. If Martin Luther says it in possibly the most obscure text in the entire New Testament, then perhaps you want to know more. Um, And then Martin Luther says this, he goes, I don't know what Peter means. And you're like, whoa, if Martin Luther doesn't know what he means, then perhaps the rest of us are going to struggle. So today, the ignorant will dismiss these words as nonsense. They go, ha, what gibberish is this? What nonsense you believe about the Bible, and I can carry on my merry way. The immature will read it and either ignore it and go, "Um, I'm not going to bother with it, or um, I'm just going to um, take the easiest understanding of it. But I hope, as mature or maturing believers, that we will look into the text and not just look for the easiest meaning, for the, but for the meaning that is helpful, that Peter seems to have originally intended, and that agrees with the rest of Scripture. So if you turn in your Bibles to possibly the most obscure text in your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. It says this. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, we're going to look at the rest of the verses in a minute, but I just want to stop there. We have Peter giving this little description. On first reading, it looks like after Jesus' death, he went and visited some spirits who were in prison somewhere and who were connected with Noah and the flood. And over the years, Christians have taken this passage and tried to get to grips with it. And Um, It looks like there are um, three divergent points, and at each point there are three options. So there is an incredible array of different answers that Christians have come up with. In the 15th century, an Italian artist named Andrea Mantegna, he was inspired by this reading, and he composed this Uh, picture and we have Christ apparently going into hell and rescuing people Um, and one interpretation of this passage that we've looked at is that Jesus descended into hell itself and offered a second chance to the people there Um, And this is known in theological and artistic circles as the harrowing of hell. And that is one solution that's been uh, given. Another solution 
is that Jesus went and came across the kind of the demons and the devils and proclaimed judgment over them. It was kind of like a gloating. There, there. You see, uh, you uh, are um, you are doomed. And there are other solutions as well. And, and the, uh, the churches seem to have uh, got a great imagination through the ages for trying to answer this. The problem is, these uh, explanations that I've just given to you, they conflict with other teachings in Scripture. So that you either have to change those Scriptures, or you have to change this one, or you have to live with contradictions um, and with a God of order the ideal position is not one where you live with verses that are saying contradictory things but you find a way that they can complement each other now I could spend the next couple of hours going through each word and trying to show you how there is a different meaning to those two first readings. Um, and I certainly started this sermon by having long passages of, uh, of the Greek and different uh, readings to them. But I want to just try and make it simple and if you are really interested uh, we can go into it uh, sort of privately but Matthew chapter 10 verse 20 has that the spirit of the father is able to speak through Christians that when a Christian speaks God can sometimes speak through them and when we have sort of spaces up the front sometimes uh we come with an expectation that God can use other people to speak his truth through them. And uh, that is one bit of information. And another bit of information in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, uh, uh, Jesus is speaking to the other criminal, uh, one of the other criminals on the cross. um, And he says, after they uh, make a confession about his lordship. He says, "Today you will be with me in paradise." And there is an understanding that after Jesus' death, he went straight up to his father's side. That he went uh, into heaven. That he did not go into hell. Um, and there are a lot of other verses as well that you have to reconcile this passage in one Peter with. Um, and so, a sort of conventional orthodox understanding now of this passage is not that Jesus went into hell or Jesus started preaching to demons but Peter is saying here that when Noah lived when he worked to build the ark the testimony of God was working through him that when Noah lived when he was being righteous Jesus was shining out from him and his works to proclaim uh, um, the sort of uh, the righteousness of God. And then when they failed to respond to that, these guys ended up facing judgment. And so this is not some bizarre sort of road trip Jesus took into hell or uh, to confront a load of demons, but it is Peter simply remembering what happened in the Old Testament. 
And he's done that before. So it kind of, this understanding, rather than some bizarre aberration, suddenly fits in with what we've read about Peter so far. Peter seems to be using the story of Noah's experience of salvation to teach these uh, Christians that he's writing to. Now, in Noah's day, uh, we are told uh, in the book of Genesis, there was considerable immorality, stuff that causes God massive amounts of grief, to the point at which God was like, I've had enough, and it needs to be dealt with decisively. And ultimately, um, and uh, even sort of kids know the story, ultimately a terrible cleansing would bring this uh, judgment about all these people that forgot God, that ignored it, um, that wanted to do things their own way, that there would be this massive water uh, cleansing that would uh, uh, pronounce judgment. But Peter isn't concentrating on that. He says, um, uh, he talks about Noah. And while the the water brought newness, before the water came, Noah had to build the ark. And if uh, you know uh, your Old Testament, you know that Noah didn't get contractors in and kind of erect the ark in a matter of days or weeks or even years. Scripture leads us to understand that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And... Some of us will be like, man, that guy must be a slacker for taking so long uh, to build a boat. But the reason, it seems, that Scripture says that it took so long for Noah to build the ark was that every new day was a chance for people to see Noah's righteousness, to hear Jesus talking to them through his example, and Every new day was another day of possible hope where people could trust in the God that Noah loved. God allowed Noah to take so long because God was being deliberately slow in judging. He wanted everyone around Noah to be given the opportunity of salvation, to be given the opportunity of, you know what, this guy Noah is a righteous man. He lives differently and he is telling us that there is uh, a great flood coming and we need to make sure that we are ready for it, that we are prepared. Sadly and eventually time was up. And the water came and it took away all those people that had ignored God, that had wandered from him, that uh, treated him with disrespect and failed to recognise his sovereignty. And Peter makes it very clear that only a few were rescued. Out of all the people of Noah's time, only a few were rescued. There was only a small number of Noah and his family, and that was it. 120 years, Noah spoke, Noah built, Noah lived perfectly, but no one listened. 
If you ever despair of uh, people around you becoming Christians, you should take heart from Noah's example, Peter is saying. He worked hard for 120 years, and in the end, only his family listened. Only his family were saved. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. says this in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient. Everyone say patient. patient. He is patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But, keep, but in keeping with his promise, we who are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In his second letter um, that uh, Peter writes, we hear this same message that he uses Noah to illustrate in the first one. God is patient. His judgment is just and right and true, but he delays it because he knows that people can't stand up under it. And so he waits and he waits looking for people to decide to follow Jesus. And you and I, we wait. We wait for the return of Jesus. We long for him to return. We long for the aches and pains and uh, all the hardship of this world to be ended. We long for our uh, saviour to come and be uh, shown in all his glory. And sometimes we can get impatient And sometimes we can wonder why God is taking so long. We just want him to come. We want all this misery over with. And Peter says, I know how you feel, but you need to remember Noah. This waiting, it shouldn't be a source of frustration for you. It shouldn't cause you to um, sort of cast questions over God's nature. It should remind you. That God is patient. That he is longing for others to be saved. That he is longing for the people around you to hear the righteousness that you speak and the righteousness you live. And he is longing for them to join you too. Every new day is another chance that the unbelievers around each of us in this room will suddenly go, oh. This Jesus. And so as we live like Noah, and as we speak 
like Noah. God is delaying his judgment so everyone can go on the Alpha course on Wednesday. Can I hear a hallelujah? <laughs> and so I think there, are sort of, there might be sort of 15, 16 weeks, and I know that uh, um, I suspect God might wait for his judgment for another 16 weeks just so everyone can have done the Elin Bubish Alpha course. Um, but beyond this good news, this wonderful patience of God, there is another divine reality that the successful Christians, the massive churches and the uh, sort of books uh, um, that sort of uh, are bestsellers, there is another reality that we need to face that Peter uses Noah to illustrate. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. I think, actually, it's all on the uh, projector. Um, It says this. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Everyone say many. Many. But small is the gate. Did anyone know the gate's name? Come on. If only I had miles here. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the gate. He is one man, and that's why it says small is the gate. It's not because it is difficult to find or hard to squeeze through. It's because it is one man, and Jesus is this gate. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few pass through. And this is the words of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear on this uh, Sermon on the Mount that the entrance to eternal life is not, generally speaking, a phenomenon that the majority experience. Peter has already said this. It is sad, but salvation is more often something for the few rather than the many. Now, sometimes there are revivals and big works of God, and uh, uh, he wakes people up. But more often than not, those that find salvation are in the minority, that we who love Jesus are spoken in the terms of the few, rather than the many. This isn't supposed to make you feel proud that somehow you've discovered the truth and all the other ignoramuses out there have failed to do so. It's not most to make you feel proud and superior to all the people that you catch the bus with and work alongside. It's merely a biblical observation that there is this grim and harsh reality that most people generally speaking, won't bother with Jesus. It's sad. It distresses me massively. But it's time and time again that the people of Jesus are often outnumbered by those that have no time for Jesus whatsoever. Right now in Crawley, you have a number of churches uh, going on and and some wonderfully are are, are bigger than this one. But in this town of over 100,000 people, it is likely that less than 1% 
of people have come together in a church. Of this massive town that we live in, the most and the majority of people are not pursuing their faith in Jesus this morning. And what this does is it makes us question. We're like, why is this? Is this Jesus true? Because most people think he's false. And we wonder um, all sorts of other questions as we look around and see so few of the town following Jesus. There is inevitably in our minds all sorts of questions that come up. And Jesus says, it will always be thus, brother and sister, that the few find the gate and the majority uh, don't bother because the, gate, uh, uh, because the way to destruction is broad and it is easy and you can choose a hundred different routes and you will find that way to destruction because there is only one gate and his name is Jesus and if you don't enter through him then you are on the wrong path. But that teaching of God's patience and his grace means that we don't treat these other people with contempt or belittling or uh, dismiss them. And just because we are not in the majority, just because we aren't the dominant uh, part of the population, doesn't mean that the way of Jesus is not true does not mean that the faith you have is not more precious than gold, does not mean that the way that you've chosen and the saviour that you follow is the answer. Because Jesus said this phenomenon will happen. We must not fall into the trap that success is kind of a measure of truth. That the more people that like it and pursue it, that that somehow means that that way is the truth. We must not imagine that because most people are not sat on church on a Sunday morning, that somehow we are the idiots, that somehow we are the uh, sort of uh, uh, pre-modern man, that somehow we are the simpletons. That's not how it works. I want to read to you um, possibly the most helpful book I've ever read uh, regarding our church in Bubish. Um, I hesitate to do this, and and you're not to be embarrassed because I'm going to put my hand up straight away. Um, Hands up if you're on benefits of one kind or another. Interesting. When we set up Bubish, and as we continue to uh, run it, we try and have a heart for the people that end up here because life hasn't been uh, a bowl of peaches, that things have gone a bit wrong, that they've struggled in a manner of different things. And, and so we've kind of always orientated our way, ourselves towards those people and, and we found that there's always consequences of that. And, and, and in this church, for the last sort of 14 and a half years, we've always struggled with the results of this. But uh, Tim Chester um, wrote this. 
Working in a deprived area is not a good way to make a name for yourself. So you can feel chuffed about that. Your church is unlikely to look successful by our current standards of success. In fact, many leaders struggle with how unimpressive their ministry looks. And ministry in deprived areas is typically slow and full of setbacks. Sometimes people who seem to be prospective leaders fall away. People boomerang, says Mez McConnell. They come to you, get cleaned up, go away, come back wrecked and so on. You can invest in someone's life every day and then they walk away. Julian uh, from Moorscombe in Brighton says this. Moorscombe always scores on the stats for teenage pregnancy, domestic violence instances, unemployment, alcoholism, antisocial behaviour. Sounds like a great place to have a holiday home, doesn't it? Um, Ours is the seventh attempt to plant on the estate since the war. Since we started in 1996, we have attempted but failed to plant in two other areas. Our numbers have fluctuated but have recently decreased, hallelujah, down to about 25 consistent regular adults. I find myself wondering if it has all been worth it and what we've achieved couple of pages later. A seed is a small and rather pathetic image of ministry. We might prefer it, it was a gun. It can seem that guns and knives carry more influences on our estates. But what happens if you bury a gun? It rots and rusts. Guns and knives do not have the power of life in them. A seed, in contrast, can be trampled and forgotten. But it has life in it, and so does the gospel. The gospel can be trampled and forgotten, but it also has the power of life in it. It is good to be realistic in ministry, but it is important to be realistic about the authority that has been given to us in Jesus. You might object, I've been working away and seen no response. People have fallen away. There have been times when I thought the only thing on my CV will be failed church planter. But there is help in Mark 4. Jesus says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Part of the ministry of Jesus is to blind people. Jesus quotes Isaiah, Isaiah, who was told that people would not listen to him. He was promised failure. In the parable, three quarters of the seed fails. It is the story with inbuilt failure. But opposition is part of the plan. It is not outside of God's sovereignty. For we are not just bringing salvation, we are bringing judgment. As long as you preach the gospel, even your failure is success in God's plan. Some very hard teaching in some of these words it is not you are just going to sail on the wings of an eagle and be perpetually successful and just see the church grow and grow and indeed that is some people's experience but it has not been my experience in this church and I would suggest that scripture suggests that that does not mean I am heretical, unorthodox, sort of 666 Satan worshipper or something. But there is something in scripture that says what we're doing here and the reality of it is something that God recognises and honours. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3.
1 Peter chapter 3. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Yes, that's me baptising Sam, goodness knows how many years ago. Well, Sam will know, I don't. If I'd have done my research, I could give you a date, but I can't. Um, Beyond Jesus speaking through Noah, beyond God's patience before the flood, beyond the only few that got saved in Noah's time, we find that Peter uses Noah as a moment to teach about baptism. Before Jesus' arrival, Judaism uh, repeatedly emphasised the religious significance of water. It kind of reflected an inner truth. When the prophet uh, uh, John the Baptist came, he said that the Jews needed to repent and that repentance should be accompanied by a good old Duncan in the Jordan River. Uh, and the Jews understood it. It was something that they related to. It was something that was part of their religion before. And so when John the Baptist said it, they were like, you know what, I understand that. It's the sort of language that I already speak. And that is why so many Jews uh, um, listened to him and got baptised by him. And, and that is why uh, the religious leaders of the time struggled to deal with him because uh, so many people understood and recognised and followed John the Baptist. Jesus eventually got baptised under John's ministry and he would later teach his disciples. He said, you need to go and make disciples and you need to baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A person confesses and believes that Jesus is Lord and Saviour and what they do as an adult... uh, They find a large body of water and they get dunked full immersion style underneath it. And he says that Noah was like that and we are like Noah. The Christians go through water. It is a picture of what went on with Noah's time. Water when we go down under it, it is a spectacle of God's righteousness, of his judgment. It is a case of we are sinners and, we, uh, and that sin needs to be dealt with. Um, I was speaking over with my kids and one additional added bonus um, over the communion table. And, and um, I was going, does anyone ever do anything wrong? And they're all very quick to put their hands up. People know, even from a young age, that we have a tendency to reject truth and goodness and do our own thing. We have a tendency to hurt others and um, thumb our noses at God. And so when we go into the water, that's a picture of God's judgment. It's a picture of the flood that came and had to deal with all the immorality of Noah's time. It is a picture of, you know what, I am a sinner and I can't wash myself. I can't just be good. As we learnt last week, I need to be a freeloader in this plan of salvation. And then, 
and uh, everyone that's ever been baptized uh, as a believer will be very thankful that the story is not you, uh, you confess Jesus Lord and Savior and then you get taken underwater and you get held there because that would be a sad story and the church would even be more emptier than it is now. Uh, because there is that moment where the people holding the person down, well, not really, lift them up out of the water. And that is a reminder that Noah went into the water, the water that saw all the immoral, immoral people judged, and he was saved through it. And he was brought into newness and a new land where he could start a, a, a new society with new values and new rules. And baptism, when it happens, is a loud, loud public statement that that punish is now done, that that sin is now dealt with, and that salvation has come. And that is because of what Jesus did, and there's newness and life and being born again. The baptism doesn't bring salvation, but it gives this picture for everyone else to see exactly what has gone on the inside on that believer. Just as water takes away uh, dirt, the baptism of someone announces the removal of sin. Water baptism has been an awkward feature of Christianity since the beginning. Christians have got baptised in water for 2,000 years. It is part and parcel of becoming a mature uh, believer. And let me tell you, if you haven't been baptised as an adult believer, the invitation here, uh, just before Big Church Day out in, uh, is it May, um, is say. You need to get baptised. And we have a wonderful opportunity on the way to Big Church Day Out. We go via South Order Country Park and we take you down uh, into some water and we do full immersion and then we all celebrate that. And as Peter remembers Noah and says that is a picture of of baptism and he says how important baptism is. The uh, invite goes out this morning just as it did to Alpha Get baptised. So those that Peter has been addressing have been encouraged in their weakness. We are only a few, Peter. What are we going to do against all the wisdom of the world? And Peter says, don't worry about it. That's Noah's story too. Just chill out. Now Peter wants them to become preoccupied with their leader. Don't worry about your smallness. Don't worry about how insignificant you feel. Don't worry about um, how little success you feel like you're having in the wider world. Because this Jesus you follow is not just a wise guy. He's not a human teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is uh, ascended. He is sat at God's right hand. He has all power and authority. When I lived in London, um, I made it my business to attend two particular churches. I attended Charles Spurgeon's, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, sort of in Elephant and Castle, and went there. And the other church I went to um, was Westminster Chapel. Um, 
and that was uh, led for a time uh, by a famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took like 20 years to preach through Romans. If you think I am slow to get through Peter, we have been in one Peter for a year. You ain't seen nothing yet. And perhaps I'm just, you know, girding my loins for that travel through Romans uh, one day. Uh, But Martin Lloyd-Jones was an incredible preacher. Uh, There are sort of uh, people around, um, particularly up at our parent church, who enjoyed uh, his direct ministry. And I want to finish, with your permission, uh, with a very well-thumbed old book from my library. It says this. It does not matter how long you've been in the Christian life. You are dependent upon him for every step. Without him, we can do nothing. We can only conquer our doubts by looking steadily at him and by not looking at them. The way to answer them is to look at him. The more you know him and his glory, the more ridiculous they will become. So keep steadily looking at him. You cannot live on initial faith. That is what Peter seems to have been trying to do when he walked on water. He started off with great faith and then instead of going on with the faith, he tries to live on it. You cannot live on initial faith. Do not try to live on your conversion. You will be done before you know where you are. You cannot live on one climatic experience. You must keep on looking to Jesus every day. We walk by faith and you live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you need him as much on your deathbed as you did on the night you were converted you need him all the time the Bible is full of examples of this one of the most perfect illustrations is the way the children of Israel had to collect manna every and each day by the uh, but the Sabbath that is the Lord's method he does not give us enough faith for a month we need a fresh supply every day so start your day with him and keep in touch with him that was Peter's fatal error on the water he looked away from him it is the fight of faith you are walking on turbulent waves and the only way to keep walking is to keep looking at him heavenly father we thank you for this confusing passage in one Peter Lord God, as we spend time in it, we find truths of your patience and of your grace. We find truths of our weakness and your strength. We find truths of baptism and salvation. And Heavenly Father, above everything I've spoken about, I pray for all of us here that we would be good at walking by faith, that we would be good at keeping our eyes on you, that we would be not disturbed by the storms around us, but, Lord God, that we would be keep looking at our Jesus, who is now resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father and who has absolute authority over creation. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Amen.